Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Pixel Sift. My name is Gianni and also and as always again. I'm, I don't know why is it just at the beginning there. I'm going to get rid of always, I think. Yeah. Um from from now on, it's going to be me and Mitch and Scott in the studio. Hello, hello. Hey. And we've got James, of course, making the video magic happen as well. We have got a cracker of a show for you today. Yeah, this week we're talking about emulating games. Um, there are many ways to do it, some more legit than others. My name is Daniel Clayton. I'm the creative director at Dime Studios. That's right. I spoke to Dan earlier this week and we talked all about his new game, Blockpocalypse. That interview is coming up later in the show. And finally, we're tackling piracy. Even though it's easier than ever to get games these days, it's still a big issue. All that and a few special announcements as well that we're super excited to share with you. You're listening to Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! It's not Pixel Sift. It's Pixel Sift. Pixel Sift! Tuh. Yeah, so I spent a lot of time playing emulators, like um, like when I was maybe like maybe early teens, I guess. Yeah, and um, I don't know. I mostly used to play older games, but this week there's uh, current gen consoles currently being emulated. So that that'll be interesting. That's yeah. right. So, so yeah, as you said, normally it was you know there was technical limitations to yeah. being able to emulate consoles, and for a long time it couldn't be done, and some of them still have never been emulated properly. Um, but the Wii U has been shown this week uh, emulating the I guess the hit game Splatoon uh, at pretty much full res, full frame rate, everything. So they've gotten a computer to communicate with the Wii U pad. Yeah, I yeah. I think that's correct. So basically, what happens is it, the the game itself, even if they've had to you know muck around with the controls a bit, um, they've got it to run on a computer, completely emulated, um, and run at full speed and full res. And uh, you know, it looks like a bit of a demo of the game. I don't know how much of it's linked into the the rest of the Nintendo Network sort of stuff because it is mostly a, a multiplayer game. But yeah, it is running at at full speed and and everything like that, which is an interesting interesting because for a lot of people when they were playing emulated games you're playing games because you can't play them anymore they're not available to play anymore um you know maybe you would never had a chance to pick up a copy of some game on on game boy and it's not like you can pop down to your, your local uh you know were they scared because the wii u was apparently not being produced anymore like don't that, know. that rumor that rumor I feels not like, confirmed, by the way. I don't. It, it no, feels not, like yeah, a we're lot not breaking of, anything on this show right now. Yeah, yeah it feels yeah. like for a lot of people, sometimes the technical uh, challenge of putting something like this together is, you know, enough of the reason why people would do it. But you know, there is that that aspect that if you did actually want to go out and play Splatoon, you can just walk into a shop right now and buy it um, and a Wii U and, and play it on that as well. So, look, I'm uh, morally, <laughs> morally even, and ethically kind of fine with emulators uh, for retro gaming, especially. I think it's uh, beyond cheeky to use an emulator for a current gen, I think. I mean, like, emulators are for exactly you said, for games that aren't uh, available anymore, for, like, abandonware and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't like I don't like this. <laughs> so, for people, I guess, who wouldn't know, who may not have heard that term, abandonware, it's, a, it's kind of a... It's not really a legal term in any capacity, but it's a, the sort of description that people give to games that have reached a point where they're past the point of being sold in shops you can't buy them anymore at all there's no way to, to legally purchase them but they are still games that people want to play so you know it exists in this realm where there's a demand for 
the game, but yet not the supply to yeah, actually play exactly. it. So, you know, for exa- a long time, games like Grim Fandango, for example, was was an example of that and things like the point-and-click adventure games like Day of the Tentacle, which just came out this week. Um, for, for a lot of people, that was impossible to play unless you actually physically owned the floppy disks. And also, even if they are available, a lot of old consoles are, you know, are quite expensive these days. Yeah. And, and just the games as well, uh, especially if you're after the bigger releases like your your Zelda on NES or anything like that. You, you look, look like $100 a game at least. Or even more. With some of these things, especially for, you know, good condition ones. Yeah, if there's limited supply as well. And think about the, the more obscure titles, the ones that aren't as popular as your, your mainstream ones like your Mario's and your Zelda's, where there just isn't that many of them. Or there maybe wasn't even a release of them in your region. There are lots of games that didn't come to Australia that people went and played on. Yeah, what was popular was Pokemon Green. Yeah. That was emulated and people just wanted to have a go at that. Yeah. Just- even though it was Japanese, yeah, and, it was, and it was a you know Pokemon Red and Blue was an updated version of of the Pokemon Green mm-hmm. and, and Red that came in in Japan. So you know we kind of got the the version two, but I guess especially in those days, people kind of wanted to play it because it was sort of a an interesting extra version, and people were, were all upon the the Pokemon hype train. So mm-hmm. it's still a big thing. The, Yes. But uh, people tend to just like the challenge, I guess, of just doing something different with their tech. Like, I mean, earlier this year in January, someone hacked the PlayStation 4 to play Pokemon. Yeah. Just to see if they could do it. Yeah. And I remember a lot of the homebrew apps that yeah. people tend to play are actually emulators. I remember on the PSP, one of the few homebrew things you could get was a Super Nintendo emulator, so you could play all your SNES games mm-hmm. directly on that portably. Um, and it's, yeah, it's one of the, I guess, sort of proof of concept of doing this homebrew technology um like legally this is a pretty great gray area um emulators as such are not illegal and as long as they don't specifically borrow any original lines of code from whatever they're trying to emulate uh the illegal part comes in really when with the rom rom images yeah like the game data basically and so like there are exceptions that's why it's so gray there was always this there is this provision especially in Australian law where you're allowed to make backup copies of, of media that you do own um, but is, is that, that still true? a thing? Is that a thing? It is technically true okay. you are allowed to make up a backup copy of something um, but for things like it means you would have to put it on another cartridge so for example if you have a Super Nintendo game you have to find a way to copy it onto another cartridge transferring it into a different form and playing it in a different way or, or something like that is not permissible that's why licensing doesn't exist for people who are like wanting to play on a bus or something a coaster bus or a tour bus you can't play it on that because the licensing isn't for that so Mm, that's kind of where people there's like a grain of truth in it so people kind of go oh that's fine because i owned it back in the day but now i don't have it Mm. um but yeah it it is one of these things it is nintendo offers up a lot of information on their website about this obviously because they're a pretty high emulated um you know uh, company yep uh and they are pretty cut and dry about how they feel about it of course nintendo has been quite good at actually you know they have the virtual console in on all on the wii and the wii u and the 3ds as well where you can actually play a lot of the old games in pretty but much the they, same format. and they've done a lot of re-releases of older stuff in the new formats but, but uh, they, and they've they, always done that yeah but they even wholeheartedly supported the um twitch plays pokemon kind of thing which is true yeah, which thing. is an emulator in its purest yeah. form i guess and yeah. something that you actually couldn't do if you didn't have it emulated Absolutely. there's no way that you could have unless you had some sort of robot actually pressing the buttons on a, on a video camera of a yeah. game boy it just it wasn't something that is physically possible and you know you run into problems with for that so you know there it, 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 it's hard to say i guess with with whether it's in some ways there's obviously the piracy aspect to it as well which is um you know not great um but for games for example you know virtual console doesn't have everything on it that you probably want there are some games out there that just maybe will never 
make it for, for licensing reasons. And then, you know, they technically would become into this category of being an abandoned ware. Look, I've game. used emulators before and I'll probably use them again. Uh, I just think, yeah, like I said, for retro gaming and abandoned ware, it's understandable. Mm. I'm okay for that. I'm all for that. But yeah, trying to trying to take money from something that is fairly much a current gen console is, it's, like I said, it's cheeky. It's cheeky. There's really a, cheeky. There's a game that's just come out, Go actually. Um, just been Kickstarter funded, basically, not quite come out yet, um, where they have actually built a game using the uh, NES uh, Zapper gun and they're actually printing it onto real cartridges in order to do... Really? To make it and sell it and it will work so on the real SNES. So the NESs can read them. The real NESs can read them. It's exactly the way. But, you know, how do you develop that if not using an emulator? You know, you need to create yeah. something that is going to be uh, an exact replica of the... That, that seems dangerous to me because like, it seems like, oh, yeah, I'm going to make... I'm going to make like an engine for a car that doesn't exist anymore and hasn't been sold in a while. <laughs> but uh, also like, Retro City Rampage, for example, they invented a version of the thing which was supposed to run on, on the Super Nintendo or the okay. NES, but also on the old DOS format as well. So it had the limitations of those particular um, consoles as well. So, you know, the, it's, it's interesting, I think, because a lot of people use emulation um, and all that sort of technology to use that to sort of jump into game development and, and do interesting things from there. So, yeah, it's... Uh, it, I, I, to be honest, my, my dream is that all the games that you played would be able to be emulated and just you be able to play whatever you want on any console, any current gen one. But, you know, there's always going to be limitations to that and people, you know, w- rightly or wrongly will find ways around that. Next week, Microsoft announces emulation on everything. Yeah, we're going to emulate every console. Your move, Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> Let's jump into our next topic. Visit us on pixelsift.com.au. Earlier this week, I spoke to Melbourne-based Daniel Clayton of Dime Studios about his game, Blockpocalypse. It came out of the Global Game Jam of 2015, which had the theme, What Do We Do Now? It's a local multiplayer game, and I asked Dan how they interpreted that theme and what decisions they made when developing the game. Jam. Uh, first of all, as a company, so the three of us, we knew that we wanted to work together and make something uh, as a team, just just us. So then that way we could we could commercially uh, take it further if we wanted to. But we also wanted to make a multiplayer platforming kind of game. So we went into it with uh, an idea and a sort of end goal, um, and then the theme. Um, it made us think a lot about sort of uh, apocalypses and doomsday scenarios and that kind of thing. So we tried to think about abstract multiplayer kind of experiences and ways of creating dynamics where the players have to almost work together to a point and then start fighting against each other or always be uh, capable of one person screwing over the other people or we we had an idea at uh, one of the earlier ideas was um like a platforming game where three people work together and one person controlled the apocalypse and the the scope of that started to get a bit too big so we kind of dialed it back and thought about um yeah really just making a survival team-based game but because it's in that doomsday kind of environment um there's always that potential for somebody to just turn on the rest of the team and like screw them over to try and get ahead themselves 
So I guess after the weekend of the Global Game Jam, it's, you know, 48 hours of intense work and everyone's pretty mentally drained. How, how long afterwards did you kind of decide to kind of come back to your game? Um, and what was it in the game that you thought was that, oh, this is something we should definitely keep working on past this point? Yeah, we we went away from it for a while. We um, after the after the jam, um, you know, we we ended the jam with something that was pretty solid. The, the project was called A Blockalypse, and it's on the 2015 Game Jam site. And you can compare what we had then to what we have now. And um, a lot of the art style is remained the same. A lot of the core interaction for the players and the team has remained the same we've just kind of refined it since then so we did a couple of weeks of that afterwards but then yeah we just had to jump on other projects for probably about four months five months and then around august we uh came back to it and were working towards the pax build that we that we then had at pax so Time-wise, we've been working on it for over a year now, but in actual man hours, it's like a couple of months, two to three months of actual labor into it. I mean, what are some of the things that you kind of need to consider when you're moving from, you know, your prototype from the Global Game Jam into something that would be a commercial release? Yeah, it's hard. Like, like we don't really know. It's, it's hard to tell. Um, I think that it's something that's pretty common across any game or prototype that you're working on but the the real advantage of the game jam is that you've got this short focused time and you've got all of this talent around you and a lot of hype and energy so that you can um, end the jam with something that you can then evaluate um, so when we evaluated Blockpocalypse we kind of looked at it and thought about whether or not uh, we thought that this was something that was marketable and, and tried to figure out what we would have to change. And then uh, we did a project audit where we went through and cleaned up all of the hacky code and all of the you know, horrible naming conventions. Because when you're, when you're in a jam, you're just trying to, you, you're trying to move ahead as quickly as possible. You're not thinking about the maintainability of the project or anything. So to take it to a commercial release, you've, you've got to clean up what you've been working on, um, try to modify it a little bit to make it something that is going to be easy to work with as you move forward um stuff that we've changed in the actual game we've we've done a lot of play testing and we've just tried to continue that play test feedback iterate loop as much as we can so you mentioned that uh, the art style hasn't actually changed hugely from the game jam version of uh, the game, and is that something that it just made sense for the game, or was it trying to emulate games that you may have played in your youth? Um, we so we're a bit younger than the uh, retro pixel art generation. We're we're more sort of towards the mid nineties, early two thousands as a company. We're all we're all about the same age. So it wasn't really inspired by how the, the games that we'd grown up because we didn't grow up playing SNES and, and Sega and those kind of things. Um, the main reason for the art style was uh, we'd never done pixel art before. We thought it would be fun. And in a game jam, it's a good time to experiment with things that you aren't familiar with. So um, it was also a bit constraint-driven. So we needed something that was... Um, very light and fast and communicated very clearly. So pixel art was good because we could produce it quickly. 
and make it look uh, differentiated from the other elements. And um, the the animation as well was something that was like, it was purely constraint driven because in a jam, you don't have that much time. So you've got a choice between volume of content or detail of content. And uh, we went for volume of content so that we could, in 48 hours, have a, a vertical slice of a game rather than a small prototype that was really pretty. So I think in the end it kind of worked out. Um, it's got a novelty to it. It's it's not the the very old school style of pixel art. It's kind of got a modern edge to it. And I think that's just because um, we haven't done pixel art before. So we sort of made it in a way that it didn't look like everything else. So the big difference between this game and your other games that you've made is that it's controller focused rather than using a touch screen. Did it just make more sense for it to be a controller on the couch type of game or is that something that you actively tried to design for? A lot of the inspiration for the dynamics that we want, the the local couch play kind of stuff that we grew up when we were playing Mario Party and Halo on the Xbox, like split screen games and, and shared screen games. That's really what informed the um, multiple controller, uh, the, the multiple players on the same screen. And, and the only way to really do that is with controllers. Um, so the controller focus, it's definitely because it's a local multiplayer game at its heart. Um, just the, the dynamics between the players when they're all in the same room, it's different to when you're remote and you're online. You can pick someone up and throw them in the lava and not have to deal with that consequence. But when you're sitting next to that person that you've picked up and thrown in the lava, it's a very different experience. And it's all fun and it's, it's in the spirit of the game. Blockpocalypse. You can check out blockpocalypse.com. Uh, it's exactly, almost exactly how you would s- spell it. It's block, block poc, pocalypse. Ellipse.com. Uh It's going to be coming out later in the year in an early access form. Uh, we'll be keeping an eye on that one throughout the year. Did you know Pixel Ziv is available on other platforms? You can find previous episodes on iTunes, Pocket Casts, YouTube, and on the Pixel Ziv website. Indie Game Studios' tiny build and Lazy Bear Games, the makers of Punch Club, revealed this week that they had sold 300,000 copies of their game. For indies, this is an impressive number, but an even bigger number was given at the same time. Punch Club was pirated a staggering 1.6 million times, absolutely dwarfing their sales. What do you feel about this? How do uh, they get the pirating numbers? That's an interesting thing. Now, when I was talking yeah. to Dan during the week, there's an interesting thing that lots of game developers are now putting into their things. and they're putting these like analytics into it, very similar to what you would be like on a website. So they mm-hmm. can tell how many times that people have sent through, you know, analytics to their website and they go, well, they can compare that against the number of sales that they've got. Right. So they would know how many people booted up, they'd know where they are. Um, you know, maybe every time that they fail in a level, they get all that yeah. sort of information coming through. So that's exactly it. Um, so I've got some pretty good stats here. Yeah, go for it. Uh, so we know it's been pirated 1.6 million times. Uh, 1.1 million of that was for PC, Macs, and Linux, and just over 500,000 was on mo- mobile. 90% of mobile piracy is Android. 
Not, really? That's, that's not that surprising. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, they've done lots of studies and they find that there's a real difference in perception between people who will uh, buy games on different mobile platforms. So people on Android don't like to purchase things on average no I'm not talking for everyone but on average they prefer to have more like free games with ads in them right. um, but people on iPhone uh, tend to purchase things but they don't really want to spend heaps of money on it they spend like a dollar or two um, that sort of thing but they'd be more likely to buy that rather than a, a free ad based version of it so, I see yeah I'm not surprised but also Android's because it's got a more open source uh, version of uh operating system there's other ways to install apps rather than just installing it from like the google play store or the app store on the iphone so of course there's ways to do that on iphone as well but so as i understand tiny build and lazy bear they they don't believe that drm is the way to go though, well i don't right? think so. they they went yeah. here i mean they've hindsight looked back and been like this is what we should have done this is what we could have done i think um one of the uh, we'll probably pronounce this wrong but alex uh um, has been quoted as saying, uh, while it's difficult to fight piracy and most DRM enforced ways are horrible for the paying customers, it's hard to deny it has an impact. Looking back, I believe what we should have done is enabled cross-platform saves on launch. This way, people who pirate the PC version may have converted better into buyers on mobile or vice versa. Um, huh. So, yeah, I guess they didn't go in the DRM direction and still don't think that's the way to go. And I mean, I don't think it is. There's such a bad kind of... Um, stigma related to DRM as far as you know, uh, game buyers and users and players are so concerned. When we talked about launch day sort of hiccups and things like that, there's a lot of times when the DRM system basically falls over and mm-hmm. people who've legitimately purchased your game actually don't get access to it while the pirates can play to their heart's yep. content. There's yep. no, no problem with it. So, Which makes people really upset. And it's interesting like what, what they mentioned there was that it, you know you increase the, there's a value added service in there so there's a value of having a sync save between it so it makes it worthwhile for people to want to purchase it and have their saves go between the two, two games and I think that's a big thing that Steam has done with uh, making it worthwhile for people to buy games because all their saves get synced to the cloud and they can download on any system and there's no restrictions on number of installs and yeah, which you know, is super appealing as a gamer. You know, you don't want to lose your all your time and effort. It is, yeah. And, and you probably, a lot of the times, just won't. I remember there was quite a few games where actually you would have a time limited or like a number of install limitation on on yeah. CD keys, basically. You installed it on more than four computers or, or sometimes it was like twice you could do it. And then after that, your key was invalid and yeah, you'd have to yeah, yeah. you know email through a sub story or whatever. And sometimes they'd give you a new key, sometimes they wouldn't. So, you know, removing that sort of restriction is, is a huge... That is a digital restriction. It was one that they brought in early on to kind of limit piracy and whatever. I remember they used to do it with downloads. Um, you know, you'd get one download or whatever legally and you may get a backup or whatever yeah. um, and there's all, every kind of outlet has their different systems but uh, I mean they're not f- there's a lots of really good ways to uh, get back at pirates that don't involve DRM or well there's even any- really interesting ways to even do like piracy prevention things now I don't know if you guys remember but back in the the 90s when you had to install games pre-internet days a lot of the time you, you I don't know what that's like <laughs> what's that like no internet well it's kind of like the same except you, you don't go on the internet as well it's just <laughs> you get a disc from a shop and you put it in uh, a bit like the console really yeah. well not so much anymore but anyway basically what they would have on, when you're starting up the game you they would often say turn to page 24 of the manual and read they'll type in the word that is line mm-hmm. 5 third word 
and you put in that thing into the manual uh, and then they go, okay, now you can go into the game. Or the LucasArts games had like really interesting little code wheel sort of things where it would be like, line up this symbol at the top. Now tell me what the symbol is. Some modern that. some modern developers are actually finding ways to, I guess they're not even trying to, at, at this point, not even trying to stop the piracy, but just punishing people for when they do pirate it. Like for example, uh, Batman... Um, Arkham Asylum. Yeah, yep. uh, the, the pirated version of that game, the glide function of Batman just was <coughs> inoperable. It just, it didn't work. Yeah, yeah, which means like, that you cannot progress any further in the game. Yeah, Probably one of the most fun bits of the Batman game is actually zooming around the city with your big Batwing cape out. Yeah, but like he, the, there's so many people on YouTube complaining, and then all the YouTube comments are just like, "You, you stole it." Basically, that's what the new guys have done. That have done really well. Uh, Far Cry Four did it as well, uh, and Gary's mod as well. Basically. They get to a point, something goes wrong, they take it to the internet. It's like, what's up with this? And they're like, yeah, well, you pirated it. Yeah, and then you, they will they will be called out absolutely. And um, a, a Japanese company, um, they made a visual novel, if you want to call it that. It's an adult game, so it's a bit racy to begin with. It's called Cross Days. And um, yeah, so a pirate... Probably in James's Steam Library. Yeah, let's, probably let's James' be honest. Steam Library, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, so that was cracked and pirated almost immediately. But um, this version that ended up online the majority of people that tried to install it had uh, there was a piece of there was a Trojan on it and that um, yeah so it had hidden Trojan virus and that would that was disguised as the installer and so someone would go yes install and then it would require the person to fill in a small survey or like a small form about themselves and then this information was then posted to the game's website along with a picture of their desktop at the time of installation. Ridiculous, wow. Yeah. Wow. So um, that was... And then so you could get that information taken off, but you had to admit openly that you downloaded this pornographic game and you pirated it illegally. Really good one that I yeah. like. Uh, game uh, Dev Tycoon. They were like Ooh, plagued yes. by programmed pirates. Uh, if you pirated the game, within the game, you would be plagued by programmed pirates. And the company basically goes out of business, Bankrupting right? their virtual development. Um, yeah. it, but that, that was by Greenheart Games. And they've actually done a few other really good ways of kind of like trolling people yep. uh, within their games. I, I really like that kind of uh, that way of fighting trolls. And I'm just gonna, also, a lot of these development companies I've, I've heard have actually been the ones putting up torrents of their games yeah when they when they've got some kind of inbuilt pirate fighting device well not even that it's pirate, pirate like uh, it's a pirate it's trolling pirates yeah it's pirate trolling and, and they, they almost use it a bit like a demo because quite often they'll play to a certain point get people invested and then this kind of like uh, sting in the tail so comes so along and them. Uh, i mean uh what we we're talking about earthbound before the snes rpg yeah and um, basically if you were pirate, playing a pirate version of that it was all the time in hard mode like real, like ridiculous even better than that though and then when you finally get to the end the final throws the whole thing freezes and resets. And resets. And, and, and deletes your save And file. deletes everything. So you have to start again. Yeah. Hilarious. Very funny. Witcher 2 uh, turned a nice, uh, not safe for work, uh, you know, raunchy love scene. They replaced the hot chick with an old haggard grandma. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny. That's, I love that and kind I'm of thing. It's it, like yeah. it's just like you just you download it illegally. All right, here's what you get. The thing Which that really blew, it. The yeah. thing that really blew me away was they've gone to a lot of effort to like to design this grandma and to yeah. put her in. Like a lot of work's <laughs> been done there yeah. just for the trolls. Yeah. I want to meet the team that was in charge of that. It's just like, all right, you guys are you guys 
model the grandma. It's All interesting. Right. Like, yeah. So CD Projekt Red, who run also run the website uh, or associated with the website, GOG, goodoldgames.com, mm. yep. they are very anti-piracy, but they're also anti-DRM. So they don't believe in having DRM copies on their thing. So they put these versions up for people to pirate, but uh, you know they're free for you to install it. You know, you buy it, you install it wherever you want. But yeah, then obviously they've still got these funny things in there. And Look, I understand pirates. Like uh, I've been a you know young kid who can afford games and back in the day I I did pirate things a lot. Um, you know, it was very easy to go and hide, hire out the video game PlayStation and take it home and just burn it. Back I'm not the, associated back, with Scott Quigg. Uh, look, I used to. And like, like I've got a good quote from the article that we pulled this from. Well, we initially initially saw the Punch Club thing on. It was, uh, people who pirated the game were highly unlikely to actually buy the game anyway, even if they couldn't pirate. Like, you know, broke is broke. And if people can't afford it, they're not going to buy it. But if you can get... And this, this even goes back to our last topic of emulation, you know, like... If people uh, can access it... Easily and cheaply. They're going to. And yep. sometimes those people can't afford it or they can't access it outside of that. So this is their only way of doing it. For me, uh, being you know a musician and whatever, I, I now that I'm finally in the position where I can start to afford things, I'm paying for all the stuff that I maybe didn't quite pay for the right way the first time. Very lucky that you can pick up Pixel Sift for free. Free it download. It doesn't lucky. cost anything. You're not pirating it. You're there we go. It for free. Are we gonna, welcome. Are, are we going to release a pirated version of the Pixel Sift? Yeah, probably, and then probably, like everything's yeah. just you know cowbell It'll the whole be, time through. It'll just get really yeah. pixely like in Sims 4 when you pirated that. That's right. Mm. Good, good thing. Good link there. Yeah, nice, nice. Uh, yeah. nice segue. Wow. Anyway, that's all we've got time for today, but we've got some great special announcements for you. Oh. If you want to check out Pixel Sift in the flesh, you can come to, and you're in Perth, of course. Mm. Uh, you've got two great you opportunities coming You don't have to be in Perth. Up. You can come to Perth. You can come to Perth. Yeah, you've got no, a few don't, days. Don't, don't leave, them, leave the rest of the world out. You can it's come more to convenient if you're in Perth, obviously. Yeah. You can come this weekend, uh, which is Saturday, 26th of March. We'll be hosting the Square Heroes launch party. It's uh, at The Glitch, and along with them, we'll be providing uh, some live commentary and some live video. So even if you're not in Perth, you can watch on our Twitch channel um, where people are going to win copies of the game and see all the festivities there. We'll have commentary from us and from Mark and Aranda who made Square Heroes. And that's 26th of March at The Glitch from 6pm. We'll post um, details of that on our page. Secondly, we'll be presenting our 26th episode live for you at the Perth Oz Comic Con. So if you're heading down there, we'll be closing out your convention at 4.30 on Sunday the 3rd of April. It's an extended episode and it'll be available on Monday the Monday after. If you're not there, I'll be sad. <laughs> we'll be there. We'll yeah. be there. I'll be there. I'll no, be there, I'm talking to the audience. Yeah, thinking, we'll yeah. help you be there anyway. As usual, we'll be yeah. putting up all the links on our website, which is uh, pixelsift.com.au. You can also find us on social media. We're on the Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our name, of course, is Pixel Sift, one word. Yeah, and if you want to grab our older episodes, you can visit iTunes, Pocket Cast, or watch the YouTube videos on the YouTube and on Twitch. On the YouTube. On the YouTube. Gosh, I'm my dad. If you're on the iTunes, <laughs> you can leave us a review, and we will really appreciate it, um, and it will help us, you know. Kick ass and take names. Exactly right. That's all we've got time for. We'll see you guys again maybe on Saturday. Peace Sorry, out. Dad. Bye. <laughs>